You're listening to Real A Theology, a podcast that considers contemporary philosophy of religion from a naturalist or atheist perspective. And this is part two of our interview with Dr. Kenny Pierce. things I wanted to ask you was um, kind of in the broader sphere of philosophy of religion on the theist side, there seems to be, at least more recently, and maybe you can kind of speak to this trend, or if you see it as a trend, uh, a kind of a movement towards uh, Catholicism in some sense. Um, so some friends of the channel that we've had actually interacted with quite a bit. Um, uh, they both converted to Catholicism and then capturing Christianity's uh, Cameron Bertuzzi. And, and it seems like there's a lot of prominent Catholic uh, philosophers these days. I believe uh, Pruss is one, right? Is, yeah. Is yeah. So like Pruss or Eleanor Stump mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of these individuals. What, what do you think of that or what do you make of that um, if, if it is even a, an important trend that's happening right now? Yeah, I, I think it is an important trend. Um, I think there are a couple of factors. One factor, I mean, within philosophy, at least, within academic philosophy, one thing that's really not surprising about it is that a lot of this grounding stuff and more generally the revival of metaphysics in analytic philosophy, uh, including secular analytic philosophy, Mm -hmm. has been kind of reinventing a lot of of tools or bringing back a lot of tools that are associated with medieval scholastic philosophy because it turns out we need that stuff. Yeah. Um, and so, and again, not just theists need some of that stuff, right? Yeah. And so in the past, I think there have always been a lot of Catholic philosophers, but in the past they might've been doing scholarship on medieval philosophy or they might've been in Catholic universities were only talking to other Catholics. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're still Catholics doing both of those things. But it's way easier now for Catholics to be part of the mainstream conversation in analytic metaphysics and philosophy of religion. Hmm. And it's a tradition that has always really valued philosophy. Sure. And it also, the kind of Thomism is a gorgeous, attractive system, right? And it's this like giant, beautiful system that's worked out over centuries. And so people, they kind of, they look at that and they're attracted to it. The Catholic Church seems like a place to be a Thomist. Sure. So I think I think that's um, I think those things are kind of um, really major factors in in this. So it's both kind of the the people in who are already Catholic having an easier time being part of the mainstream conversation than they might have at a previous point in history, and then also the the philosophers who are. Um, attracted to Thomism. Yeah. Do, do you think there's anything to the, you know, cause I've heard a lot of people talk about, in fact, we have a, a guy on our team, uh, really theology who, uh, uh, is at least sympathetic to Catholic traditions, uh, finds them, you know, beautiful or, um, you know, uh, aesthetically, uh, valuable. 
do you think there's something there where like just the Catholic practices and, you know, the mass and the yeah. different, the things that they, traditions they carry out, you know, there's some kind of maybe mystery there that's beautiful in some respect. Uh, do you think that that's kind of um, drawing people these days? There's something about it these days that maybe is alluring. Um, is there anything to that aspect of it? Maybe. Yeah, I think there are, there's some other kind of more sociological, less philosophy specific things in terms of um, the, um, you know, rock concert style, yeah. evangelical things seeming less meaningful and relevant to people, even though it's, it's relevant in the sense that it's engaging with contemporary culture and yet somehow it's not doing what people need, right? So right. there's, I think there's definitely some of that. Um, a kind of high church move. Yeah. Um, there's also, um, there are some people who are moving away from evangelicalism for a variety of reasons, uh, potentially including its social and political associations and other things like that, who continue to hold relatively conservative views on certain issues, right? And the Catholic Church, or in Richard Swinburne's case, the Greek Orthodox Church, mm -hmm. um, are are potentially places where you might kind of um, decisively separate yourself from the things you don't like about evangelicalism while continuing to hold conservative or traditionalist views mm -hmm. about some of those issues. Yeah. Um, so I think that's probably also a factor. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes, that makes sense. Um, uh, okay. So the next thing I want to ask you then is that you recently wrote a, uh, an article in, um, Sola Scriptura. I think I'm saying that right. Sola uh, Scriptura and Foundations of Christian Belief. Um, and that was over at Orthodoxy and Dialogue. Um, and, uh, just curious if you could elaborate a little bit on that, that uh, piece that you wrote. Um, yeah. So, I was asked to kind of write something from the, the Protestant perspective about my attitude to tradition yeah, and that kind of thing. And so I was, was kind of trying to, I took sort of an autobiographical approach, which I don't often do, mm -hmm. trying to understand or explain how my understanding of Sola Scriptura has evolved over time. So Sola Scriptura is a Protestant slogan Mm -hmm. It may be a mistake to call it a doctrine because there are so many different interpretations of what that slogan means. Sure. So a Protestant slogan, scripture alone, meaning the, the Bible alone. Yeah. Um, a common, more specific formulation is something like the, the Bible alone can bind the conscience of the believer. Mm. And, and what they're, they're, you know, so the idea is something like, um, it's only if you really believe that this is only if you're, if you become convinced that this is taught in the Bible, that you really think that in virtue of being a Christian, you have to believe it. Mm -hmm. Something like that. Right. Yeah. But there have been, you can trace all the way back to nearly to the beginning of Protestantism. You can trace kind of extreme versions of this where people are saying, um, if it's not in the Bible, we can't do it. Right. Right. Like there are there are churches that don't use any um, musical instruments because they're not mentioned in the New Testament, right? Or there are churches that only use the musical instruments that are mentioned in the Old Testament, right? <laughs> um, 
And uh, and so those kind of approaches have been around from the beginning. Yeah. Um, my question is, so first, the Bible alone, what? Right, like what, how do you finish the sentence? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, we have to finish it in a way that makes sense together with our reasons for accepting the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and as someone who... Um, kind of was coming from that broadly evangelical sort of background. Um, That wasn't a question that was discussed a lot. So we just like the, you know, we we read the Bible, we believe what it says. It's like what we do because we're Christians. (laughs) Um, but, But why? And there also was a lot of like, I guess, confusion for me about how that interacts with, say, trusting experts about languages that don't speak and about history and interpretation. Mm-hmm. Like, what really is the Bible alone? Uh, and then there's the questions about, like, how did you identify the Bible and decide just these books and no others are divine revelation, especially given that there's disagreements about the boundaries of the canon and right. this kind of whole historical thing about how those books got to be in there. Um, when you trust the Greek translation or the Hebrew original of, of the Old Testament, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, um, I got worried about all that stuff um, as a, when I was an undergraduate student. Yeah. Um, and I guess I'll say that the kind of the place I've arrived at my, my, my view of what I want to say about, about the Bible is that the Bible is both a record of the most important experiences humans have of God that humans have had, particularly the experiences of those who knew Jesus in the flesh. Mm-hmm. and also a means by which God is experienced by people today. Hmm. And so you have to kind of, reading the Bible is a, a ritual practice. Hmm. This goes back to this like attractiveness that people have of Catholicism as Protestants trying to pretend we don't have rituals, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. sort of Protestants, low church, extreme low church Protestants, right? Right. <laughs> uh, it's a type of, of ritual practice. And people will say things like, you have to do it prayerfully, right? Mm-hmm. Suggest they have some degree of understanding of this. And there's a kind of way of reading the Bible to, to hear it as the word of God. Mm. Um, and, uh, but when I'm starting to think that way, then I'm thinking it's in the context of the church that the Bible can be heard as the word of God. Mm. And there's this kind of tradition of experiencing God and trying to make sense of those experiences Mm -hmm. traces all the way back to those first authors who were trying to tell the community what they learned about God from the experiences that they had. Hmm. And so there's a way in which I think the, um, the debate between Catholics and Protestants has created an unhelpful opposition between scripture and tradition mm. that you don't see in the Eastern Christian tradition. And this is part of why I was doing this on the orthodoxy and dialogue, talking mm-hmm. to people from that tradition. The, 
Um, the idea should be rather something like the, the, the Bible is the living core of the tradition mm -hmm. uh, rather than seeing an opposition between scripture and tradition. And that's something I think both Catholics and Protestants can and should take on. It's a, actually, the Bible is the living core of the tradition. And the, the thing we're, we're trying to do is look to it um, for Protestants. We're going to say that it is uh, unique and special in the way that believers can hear God in it and that you can't uh, hear God the same by listening to, you know, the authoritative teaching of the church hierarchy or something. Right. Um, but that uh, nevertheless, it's kind of being part of a tradition and a community that experiences God and um, the scriptural words as the voice of God occupying a, a special privilege and place in that um, is, is kind of um, a large part of what I think uh, Protestants should be after in the special place of scripture. There's also kind of a, a narrower point about saying that church leaders shouldn't try to require as conditions for membership things that aren't clearly taught in, in the Bible. There's some kind of narrower church government things going on. But in terms of how individual Protestant believers approach religious belief and practice. Yeah. This kind of idea about as a member of a community that stands situated in a tradition, I hear God speak in the scriptural words in a special way. That's to me what's unique about it and what Protestantism takes as being kind of uniquely core to the Christian experience. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's a good kind of way of um, distinguishing between, yeah, kind of how Catholics see things and how Protestants see things. Is there, what sorts of reasons would you have or, uh, or say, would you give to somebody where you, that would explain why you prefer or lean more towards Protestantism than say being a Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox um you know, wh why do you think Protestant is kind of more the, uh, maybe gets it right or, um, I don't know. If yeah. Um, so I have, I have unoriginal things to say about saints and icons. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, I, although, although I love religious art. Sure. Yes. I, I don't have a problem with the, and actually I'm, there are some traditional Greek icons that I absolutely love. Yeah. Um, and I don't have a problem with kind of those art objects having devotional significance for us. Sure. Um, but I think there are specific ways they're used in Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy that I find objectionable. Mm -hmm. um, I think that um, another kind of um, something that I, I maybe have a bit more relevant expertise to talk about is the um, the kind of epistemology of the whole thing. Okay. That I just, um, I don't think there's any good reason to expect infallible determinations. Um, I think God has obviously left us with all kinds of uncertainty and there's no getting rid of it because like, how do you know you're following the right allegedly infallible authority? Yeah. From the individual subjective perspective, right. there's always going to be uncertainty. Um, and 
objectively, sure, there's one truth and it's right. And whether there's a Pope or not doesn't make any difference to that. Right. Um, <laughs> so, so I think, um, I think there's always going to be that uncertainty. And I also really think it's a mistake for churches to try to answer as many questions as the Catholic church tries to answer. Hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. And also some Protestant churches that I have been in, yeah. Um, Cause I've been in reformed traditions before, which have kind of the same tendency. <laughs> and, and, you know, my, my attraction is I love, I, I love those systems, the like beautiful systems where all the pieces fit together. And cause I'm a philosopher. Yeah. It's great. Yes. Um, but I just like, I don't see, I don't, I don't really like the idea of a church being deeply wedded to a system with that much detail in it. I don't see why they should do that. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, we have some basic doctrines that are enough to provide a foundation for a life of worship and service together. And people should be encouraged to think harder about, about more than that. Yeah. Um, but the Bible is really confusing. <laughs> and God probably did that on purpose. <laughs> if you actually think the Bible is inspired, yeah. it doesn't look like God wanted to just give us all the answers. I, I um, appreciate that honesty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, just think I, I don't want to get too kind of facetious or negative because I really mean it when I say I love the system. Yeah. But like God decided not to write the catechism of the Catholic church <laughs> and to write the Bible instead and, and so from the from a Christian perspective, I think maybe we're supposed to be like struggling and working through the questions mm. rather than having the answers. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of Eastern Orthodox thinkers might agree with me on this. Okay. Because they do a lot less of that than the Catholics do. So what do you think of um, a lot of the, you know, the Catholic views that the early church believed you know, explicitly in Catholic doctrines like the the papacy and real presence and the necessity of sacred tradition and th things like that. Do you think they have any uh, point there or are they kind of reading into things? Yeah. I'm not a church historian, but I care about this stuff and I've, and I've read about it and I'll kind of tell you my non-expert opinion. Sure. Um, my non-expert opinion on most of that stuff is that um, they do have a point, but they're reading too much in. And, you know, the Catholic Church believes in doctrinal development. Mm. And what that means is if you're really being consistent, you're going to say the things these early people are saying are much less precise than the thing that the Catholic Church ended up saying centuries later because doctrinal development and so do people think that we really encounter Christ in the Eucharist? Yes. In the early church. John Calvin thinks that too. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, do they have the theory of transubstantiation? No. This is a like medieval scholastic metaphysical theory that kind of develops much later. And again, many Catholics will admit that. Huh. Do they think that the Bishop of Rome has some kind of primacy over other bishops, that, that, that Rome is the most important bishop in some way? Yes. 
Um, do they think the uh, Bishop of Rome can make infallible doctrinal pronouncements? I'm pretty confident the answer on that one's no. Um, and so the and, and in fact, papal infallibility was still controversial in like the 17th and 18th centuries among Catholics. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a dispute even today, as I understand it, about how many times papal infallibility has actually been exercised. If hmm. I'm not mistaken, some if I, I believe there are some Catholic theologians who say it's only once hmm. um, or, or twice, though, like the doctrine of the um, Immaculate Conception and the doctrine of papal infallibility itself. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I'm going to kind of say that on all of these, on, on all of these things that, um, yes, the early church believed this kind of vague thing mm. and the Catholic church has made it much more precise to okay. make it a stronger claim. Yeah. Um, and Christians should give some weight to that kind of vague general thing and take seriously um, the, you know, I think, I think Zwingli's view, Zwingli, the forgotten reformer from Switzerland, um, contemporary of Luther, uh, his view that the Eucharist is just a symbol of the body and blood and there's no magic going on, right? And it affects the believer only because we're remembering the death of Christ when we consume it. Mm -hmm. Um, That view I think actually makes perfectly good sense of the biblical texts. And if you're a sola scriptura Protestant, you have to say it's orthodox. Sure. It's fine to believe that. Uh-huh. But I also think that for me, as someone who believes what I said about the kind of uh, experience of the church through the ages and being in a community that stands in your tradition and so on, I think making sense of that experience, my own and those of others, requires us to say something stronger than Zwingli. Mm-hmm. And I think that those early church figures who were saying, we're talking about the way Christ is encountered in the sacrament. Um, I think, you know, we're trying to describe an experience. Um, and I do want to say that that experience was genuine, um, but I don't want to give transubstantiation as the correct metaphysical theory yeah. uh, stand behind it. Yeah. Uh, okay. So this goes along with what you, you kind of, you've been saying here, but how would you respond to, uh, so the uh, Anglican convert uh, to uh, Catholicism, uh, St. John Henry Newman, who, uh, who claimed, so here, here's a quote from him. He said, to be deep into history is to cease to be Protestant. I don't know. What do you make of that? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it might depend on how you define Protestant, I guess. Okay. Um, he didn't say to be deep in history is to be Catholic, right? So, um, <laughs> so I mean, I think um, I think a lot of my evangelical background and some of the kind of non-denominational stuff. They, you know, there are some of these evangelical groups that act like Christianity started in the 1970s or something, <laughs> and I just I, that's really a thing that I like had to get past. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I would have kept my faith if I was stuck there. Interesting. Really. Yeah. I, it, it just, it's not that meaningful. Um, yeah. And, and so, um, and so sure I'm, I'm, uh, I'm deep in tradition or, or loving tradition in a way that some Protestants haven't. Um, but I don't think I'm doing something different than right. Luther or Calvin or Arminius or Wesley. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, so I think, um, so I, I just, I don't think that the, the history, is, the 
church history is going to necessarily lead someone in the specific directions of Catholicism or Orthodoxy. But I do think there are versions of Protestantism that you can't hold on to while taking the history seriously. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Um, I wanted to switch gears to, do you see a distinction or, and what distinction do you see between Christian apologetics and Christian philosophy of religion? Um, you know, do they have different qualities and methods or do you think there's, um, what distinguishes the two or do you think there's much of a difference between the two? Um, what are your thoughts on kind of those two different, uh, aspects of, um, what Christians do. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I want to preface when I've commented on this before, people sometimes think I'm like building up people like me who are professors of philosophy and insulting the people who call themselves apologists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I don't know what everybody else necessarily means by philosophy or apologetics, what they like think they're doing when they use that label. Yeah. I, you know, so I don't want to, I wouldn't want people to think that I'm like talking about particular people, but if I was making a distinction between two different activities that people can engage in, what I would call philosophy of religion is a research program or a field of inquiry Yeah, where you precisely don't have the answers and you're trying to understand things better by thinking through these arguments and, and developing them. And the point is to improve your own beliefs. Yeah. Um, and to help others who are trying to do the same. Yeah. Um, and so philosophy of religion in that sense, you know, people have some, commi- you can't question everything at once. Fair. Yeah. People have some commitments that they kind of hold on to and assume, but they're inquiring and changing their views and it's a, a field of inquiry. Yeah. Apologetics is about, you know, people love to quote that verse from Peter about giving a reason for the hope and, and whatever. Right. It's about explaining to the public the reasons in favor of a particular view. Right. So the view is fixed and you're trying to show that there are good reasons for it. Now, I think that can be okay. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's a kind of moral hazard, right, in that if you no longer think the view is good, you're out of a job or something, right? Like this, like this activity only makes sense as long as the view holds. Yeah. Uh, that can happen with different kinds of research programs as well. That sure. they have kind of a fundamental assumption that'd be really hard for you to give up because it would mean that everything you've published in the last 10 years is bunk, right? Yeah. So you can get, this happens to philosophers and scientists and everybody. Yeah. Um, but I really think that's the, the difference And when apologetics can be really bad is um, when it, when it can be bad is when they just are trying to do anything to make the view, the kind of predetermined view look good. Yes. Don't care about being honest about the reasons that exist on both sides and the problems with the view and so forth. And I think, you know, that's a real disservice. A lot of, the fundamentalist apologetics and education stuff for, uh, you know, the way they, the things kids hear in youth group or whatever are just like setting them up for loss of faith because they're relying on stuff that just doesn't stand up. Mm -hmm. Like 
you know, Ken Ham would love for everyone to believe that you can't be a Christian and believe in evolution at the same time. Right. Um, and look, you got to believe in evolution. If like it's, the evidence is there, right. and it doesn't matter if you're a theist or an atheist, the evidence is there. Yeah. Um, and so, and so telling people that you've got to resist all that evidence in order to be a Christian is just yeah. setting you fail. Yeah. Hiding evidence or arguments from them or straw manning atheists constantly is also setting them up to, to lose their faith whenever they encounter the like real thing. Right. Yes. Um, so that's when I think apologetics can be really bad. Yeah. Um, but I, and I think when apologetics is good, I'm not sure what the difference is between it and public philosophy of religion or popularizing philosophy of religion. Sure. Yeah. Apologetics is kind of educating people about philosophy of religion. Yeah. Tell me what you think of this. Oh, I I wouldn't consider you an apologist. Um, uh, I like how you described that philosophy of religion is a research program. Now I know apologetics the term apologetic, you know, apologetics or doing apologetics or giving an apology technically means giving a defense, um, which is fine. When I think of apologetics these days, I don't, you know, because you like you even give you give arguments for uh, God's existence. You defend uh, your uh, theistic position, um, and so in some sense, uh, in a broad sense, you know, someone might say you are engaging in apologetics, and um, and as you said, there's nothing wrong with that per se. What I'm thinking of these days is sort of like the difference between, say, what you do and what I would call an apologist is, um, and you kind of touched on this, is that they've made it their job, their whole job, their identity even in a lot of cases, to defend um, a predetermined conclusion. Um, you know, whereas kind of you were indicating, you know, if if they somehow lost their faith, th- that's like... Um, you know, their, their whole life is turned upside down. You know, they kind of people expect them to know they're, they're supposed to be the person defending and giving answers to every argument that comes in and that's what they're supposed to do. And so if they fail at that, you know, that's, there's sort of this uh, huge fall uh, that happens. Whereas if you're more of a, just a philosopher of religion, you know, and you change your mind, you haven't really lost your position as a philosopher of religion. You're still a philosopher of religion, you know, um, and one could say you've made, you know, maybe progress or you've, uh, you know, just happened to be more persuaded uh, of this position now than you were before. And maybe you'll even switch back, you know. Um, does that sound accurate to you as far as just the more um, what apologia, uh, what it's come to mean these days? Uh, yeah, I think something like that. Um I mean, I would say, of course, there are philosophers of religion at uh, Christian universities that require them to sign a faith statement. Right. And they're real sure. philosophers of religion. Sure, sure. They would lose their job if they changed their mind about certain things. Right. Um, That's true. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and again, like I say, there are things that you could change your mind about that it would mean your kind of last 10 years of publications are all bunk. Sure. I. I think, I mean, some really famous, respected philosophers like Bertrand Russell and Hilary Putnam have done things like that. So it's probably yeah. okay. um, <laughs> yeah. like Wittgenstein. Yeah. Um, right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the, um, you know, so, so I, I think the distinction isn't sharp. Sure. Right? Sure. But the reason I prefer, I prefer the, the label 
philosophy of religion yeah. over the label apologetics is that um, I, whatever, in whatever ways I might in fact be imperfect in real life, <laughs> the, the project that I want to be engaging in, the thing yeah. that I hope I'm doing is trying to think through these questions more carefully to improve my beliefs. And, and I think trying to give reasons for some predetermined conclusion. Right. And I think that fits more with the, the cooperative um, goal as well, mm -hmm. um, where being an apologist seems to somewhat naturally put you on a, well, I mean, it's a defensive in, uh, in some sense. I mean, it can also be offensive as well, but there just seems to be a more combative, um, a naturally, uh, a natural combativeness to the idea of being an apologist versus a philosopher of religion where this is what I investigate. And yeah, I have beliefs about these things, but um, you know, one thing I appreciate about you uh, very much is just your willingness to be honest when uh, like, yeah, this argument's not very good, you know, uh, or yeah, I realize the weaknesses here. Um, you know, uh, this is my preferred uh, view here's some arguments i think but i realize they have weaknesses here here and here and this is where we would have to dig in deeper i really appreciate that about you um whereas i feel like a lot of uh self-proclaimed or professional apologists don't often concede that much you know it's like uh nope i'm going to endorse every argument as long as it's an argument for my position <laughs> you know uh even ones that aren't Maybe I shouldn't be endorsing because they're not good, <laughs> but I'm not going to admit it because I don't want to introduce doubt into anybody, you know. Um, yeah. But Leibniz, uh, Leibniz wrote a kind of um, commentary on John Locke's essay concerning human understanding. Uh -huh. and there's a chapter with a proof for the existence of God, and Leibniz's commentary kind of starts out. I really hate to say this because I love arguments for the existence of God. And I think the more good arguments we could possibly have, the better. But yeah. this argument does not work. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, then he points out why. Um, yeah. But, I, but I, I, you know, I like that preface about like I, I wish this argument works worked right. Like I like. Yeah. It, but, right. But I'm looking at the logic here, and you've got a problem. Yeah. Good on him. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, and it's good that both you know both sides need to do that because there can be, you know, uh, you know, I wouldn't say there's really any. Well, I mean, there kind of are some professional. Uh, apologist for atheism but it's not as much of a uh, job title of, uh, on the side of it but there are people who can act that way for sure and kind of that brings me into the next thing is you know the whole issue with the new atheists um uh, that were big you know a decade ago or so um many of them could be accused of not taking you know the best of uh, theism seriously um it, it seems that a lot of maybe you know the again kind of focusing on those professional apologists and we don't, again, we, like you said, we don't have to name names or anything, but um, it seems like they haven't responded maybe to the best that atheistic philosophy has to um, offer. And, and so I was just curious on your thoughts on how we could get both sides to hmm. take the best of the other side more seriously. Cause that seems to be the, uh, we often like to go for the low hanging fruit on both sides. Yeah. I mean, one thing I think is really important is the move toward more 
um, public philosophy is what we're calling it now, mm. uh, or public scholarship, the universities like to say, right? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're at a time, there are lots of reasons why this is important. We're at a time when people have less and less positive views about universities in general in American society. Yeah. And we're also at a time when the kind of ongoing relevance of the humanities in general and philosophy in particular mm-hmm. is uh, kind of more and more being questioned. Yeah. And, uh, but people, uh, you know, not everybody who's kind of questioning or disputing the value of this stuff even knows what it is. Um, and so what, and so there are lots of reasons why we kind of really desperately need to bring philosophy out of the ivory tower Mm. and have, you know, not every, not every philosophy professor is good at this and not everyone has to do it and not everyone's research program is suitable to it, but we need to kind of encourage and reward people who get out of the, the ivory tower and kind of bring philosophy to the broader public. And I do think that, um, kind of atheism should absolutely be part of that or naturalism questions about there's a bunch of philosophy on like how do you even define naturalism or natural um you know and and how should philosophy relate to science and so kind of um i'd really like to see a lot more of that and i think that could really be a a starting point the trend we're starting to see but because most people who specialize in philosophy of religion are theists, um, yeah. we haven't seen huge numbers of atheist philosophers getting out, um, you know, getting out there and doing the public philosophy thing. Yeah. Um, now, one of the most common arguments I see from the um, theist side, from again, uh, some of the uh, uh, more apologetics focused people, is that. Um, atheism is incompatible with moral realism, say, or, you know, or atheists have no way to ground morality. Um, what are your thoughts on that argument? And do you think, uh, do you think that's one of uh, the things that they should just like abandon? <laughs> well, yeah, I think the pop apologists should just abandon it at this time. Um, now, now I phrase that the way I do because, you know, most of these arguments, maybe there's a good version of it that could be developed. Or, you know, it's just that it requires way more work than people make it sound like. Yeah. And when people give it, they're often being, they're often kind of encouraging very simplistic thinking. And they're often kind of making insulting representations about atheists because people don't always know the difference between not having a convincing philosophical theory of the origins of morality and not being a moral person. Um, which are like completely different things. Yeah. Um, so I think it just is, I think it's just really bad the way I see it in that kind of pop apologetics public sphere. Yeah. Um, and the, the thing that people have to do is just do more work at meta ethics, right? right? So it's really hard to make sense of morality to figure out what it is and where it comes from, whether you are a theist or an atheist. I totally agree. I've been reading a lot on meta ethics lately. And I tell you what, I'd say it's harder than 
mathematics. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's incredibly difficult. And, you know, I lean towards realism, but, you know, it's uh, lately it's, I've been pretty challenged, you know, in my views on that. I still lean towards realism, like I say, but um, you're right. It's incredibly difficult to really make sense of it and, and uh, really uh, get clear ideas on these things. Um, yeah. You know, Plato said you need many years of studying mathematics before you'll be equipped to do hard stuff like ethics. Yeah. <laughs> he's, right. That's part of his education program. I think he's right. Um, do you, would you say that you, um, do you think there does exist? So whether you've developed a, a, your, a version of this yourself or not, um, that's not quite what I'm after. I'm, I'm just wondering, do you think there is a version of the moral argument that does work or would you say that uh, moral realism can be um, coherently integrated into atheism? Well, if we interpret work in such a way that that's a dichotomy, mm -hmm. that for the moral argument to work means for you to establish that there's no successful, no like workable, atheistic theory of uh to support moralism yeah then i think clearly no version works because you can always be like a morian non-naturalist or platonist or something right and think the moral truths are just out there right. or goodness is a fundamental objective property of some things and mm -hmm. uh, so clearly there's that um and it's fine. Um, I mean, it's fine in a way, right? In that you just say, yeah, I'm an atheist and I also believe in moral truths. There's no conflict. Right. Um, the, the thing about that view is that you're not really trying very hard to explain moral truths. Mm -hmm. And the question is whether they need a kind of explaining that's not available on that view. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so I think what we really need to do here is theory comparison. Right. And think about like, let's develop detailed theories of meta ethics. Mm -hmm. and some of them rely on God in some way and others don't. And let's just kind of do some philosophy and look for the best theory. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the day, we could get some, I, I kind of think we might get some modest support for theism in that, so I believe in a theistic version of Kantianism, and I okay. think the theistic version is a little bit better than the atheist version. Okay. Um, but I think the atheist version is okay. Um, so, and I'm yeah. not sure whether that counts as a version of moral realism. It depends on how you define it. Right. Um, right. So, you know, so at the end of the day, reflections about metaethics maybe give some modest support for theism, in my view. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. But, but that wouldn't be anything like atheists can't believe in moral truths that's that's no matter how you interpret that i think it's just wrong right right yeah uh, would you say that's fairly a, a more common view because um i know like for instance richard swinburne isn't very fond of the moral argument for god's existence um in fact in his book uh, the existence of god he he seems to actually say i just don't really see you know uh any force from that argument um, at all. So he kind of just abandons the whole moral argument, at least it seems to me. And there's a couple others who seem to reject the moral argument as well, kind of like what you're saying here. Would you say that that seems to be a more prevalent view in um, even for th 
theistic philosophers um uh kind of i want to i want to say kind of in a higher tier than just the standard kind of like apologists you know because a lot of apologists really seem to love the moral argument but there seems to be this discrepancy you know like a lot of really important philosophers uh even theists are like no that's not really a good argument um would you say that's pretty common like it is it more the case that when you're talking about philosophers of religion that they're not so fond of that argument um in general yeah i think that's right i yeah. i think i think you'd be hard pressed to find um kind of philosophy professors in major universities who think that a simplistic version of the moral argument is successful mm. um I don't know how many people might think some more complicated version is successful. And again, it depends on kind of what counts as a moral argument and what counts as success. Right. Um, but part of the problem here is just like say the logical problem of evil. Right. The problem isn't, well, I don't think, I don't think that planting approved conclusively that the compatibility of evil with God. Mm, okay. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Some people think that he did. Right. I don't know that because this Molinist metaphysics is way too controversial. It's not clear that anybody should believe that's coherent. Um, maybe it is, maybe not. Yeah. Um, I don't think he proved that. Yeah. But what he showed is that the kind of extra premises that you need to mm. get from there is any evil at all to there is no God are premises that cannot be easily proved. Mm-hmm. And I think the same thing is going on in kind of the, the moral argument here that you just like, you can't establish that connection. And the reason you can't establish that connection is metaethics is too hard. <laughs> right? like, and, and, so, and so, you know, on my view, morality is objectively metaphysically dependent on God, right? That's a fact about the structure of reality, according to me. Right. Okay. But that doesn't show. And so there's a sense in which I can say, if there's no, if there were no God, then there would be no morality or something like that, because God is actually the foundation for it, according to me. But um, that doesn't show that kind of, there's any incoherence in an atheistic worldview that sure. holds there's morality without God. Yeah. Right. It's just that in my worldview, there's this dependence. That's fine. Yeah. Um, but, but that, you know, but can I establish that in a way that's not presupposing a whole bunch of other controversial stuff from my worldview that the atheists won't accept? No. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. No, I really appreciate that. Would you say that there's any particular atheistic um, or naturalistic um theory of ethics uh, a realist version that you find um is like the best or the strongest like you're like you know if 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 i could agree with the atheist yeah i think you know that one would be the one to hold yeah so well so like i said i, I think the theistic version of kantianism is only a little bit better than the atheistic version so uh -huh. uh, i think on this kantian view um god doesn't play a really central role in the um, in kind of where moral obligations come from. Okay. Um, the the Kantian view holds that um, to, to try to say anything about Kant very simply, uh, <laughs> so but the but the idea is that 
if we think about what it is to act for reasons, right? We can see that actually certain sorts of moral, a certain sort of moral law arises from that very activity of acting for reasons. Because by taking uh, something to be a reason for an action, I'm actually willing a kind of universal rule. Mm. And there are, and that structure of, uh, of these willing universal rules implies certain universal laws that you can't make any kind of consistent structure of rules without endorsing. Mm -hmm. That's my favorite theory, but um, there's there's no reason an atheist couldn't be an Aristotelian virtue theorist or something like that. Either. Sure, sure. So it's not, uh, what you were describing there sounds a bit like um, uh, like what Derek Parfit kind of um, talks about with the reasons for action. Is that is that fair? Yeah, there's a lot of Kantian influence on a lot of that literature around Parfit and others. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, excellent. Yeah. Uh, Derek Parfit is really interesting. I got his three, well, I have three of his three books set on what matters up on there. Uh, yeah. Um, excellent. Uh, well, you mentioned the problem of evil. Um, and uh, I wanted to just ask you about that too, because since you brought it up, which I thought was um, good, um, there are some, some apologists tend to think that the problem of evil actually proves God's existence. And um I don't know what. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, because I don't. Are you familiar with what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, I, I tend. I, I usually think those things are silly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there. You know, I don't want to. Any of these things, I'm like somebody maybe could some creative philosopher could come up with a sophisticated version of this that that might surprise me, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so I don't want to kind of be completely dismissive. Um, but I, it's silly to suppose that, um, you can't raise the problem of evil for theists without having your own adequate theory of evil. Yeah. Or even without having evil in your worldview. Right. You wouldn't be able to reason about it if you didn't have at least kind of a rough concept of it. But most versions of, like, the logical problem of evil can be framed as a proof by contradiction, just like in math. Right, right, right yeah. So, like, there are no, there is no largest prime, but we can perfectly well start from the assumption that there's a largest, that there's a largest prime mm -hmm. and, and proceed to a contradiction in order to show that there isn't one. Right. Um, and so you can think of it that way as showing there is God and there is evil. These are assumptions that... Uh, most theists hold, most theists agree that there's evil. Um, it would be pretty difficult to get rid of that in most kind of religious views. Yeah. And so um, that would be, uh, and so you could just start with those as assumptions for contradiction, as long as you have enough grasp on the concept of evil to reason with it. Yeah. Uh, and then you don't even have to believe in it, let alone have a theory of what it, of like how it can be explained within your worldview. Yeah. Okay. At the beginning, we kind of talked about some good uh, introductory uh, books um, to look at to get into philosophy of religion. But since you're on the theistic side, what would you say are some of the best theistic works um, that are rigorous and formidable? So if someone like kind of want to get into the like some of the best theistic philosophy out there uh, to date. 
so um, there are a lot of books I like. Yeah. Um, the uh, the recent books that I that I like best in theistic philosophy don't tend to be the like arguments for the existence of God. Okay. Um, they tend to be kind of in, you know, because it's a research program, right? So we're trying to. Yeah, yeah. So like a book that I can't get out of my head is Eleanor Stump's Wandering in Darkness. Okay, yeah. About the problem of evil. And it was a sort of thing where like while I was reading it, I'm like, I'm enjoying this. This is a good book. But I like while I was reading it, I didn't think it was earth shattering. Mm-hmm. And then I can't stop thinking about it. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've seen, yeah, I've seen, I've seen that one. Um, it's in my um, list to read. Um, so she's addressing specifically the more of the problem of evil in that one. Yeah, and so it is in a way and about arguments for theism in the sense that it's about, um, although it's not so much about diffusing the argument for evil in a way that would convince an atheist or something, but about you know what it. What, would it, what does it mean to have faith in God in a world full of evil? Interesting. And how can that be a rational attitude? Okay. And it has really interesting discussions of narrative. That's a mm. subtitle, narrative and the problem of evil. Yeah. About why you would think we'd be able to learn something relevant to this from stories. And then she has these like fantastically philosophically insightful commentaries on Bible stories. Mm. And you would think that this would be like some kind of shallow Sunday school thing. <laughs> and, it's, and it's not at all. Yeah. Um, that why these like little stories that those of us who were raised Christian, yeah, uh, like learned when we were seven or something are like actually this really deep philosophical resource for, for thinking about faith and suffering and evil. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, w- I would say, you know, I'm, for many atheists and myself included, uh, the problem of evil is a big stumbling block for me. You know, that's a big one for me. So do you think um, even if you, you kind of mentioned that you didn't think it might convince an atheist, but do you think it would nevertheless be beneficial uh, f- for an atheist to check out? I do. And something I think is, um, as, as you know, as we mentioned before, the um, atheists who are not not that I'm saying that this is like the only reason that they're atheists, right? Right. But, but atheists who, in addition to their intellectual reasons, yeah, um, kind of were personally hurt by religion or are very concerned about the kind of ways in which religion has contributed to evil in the world. <laughs> um, I think I would recommend this book to to those people to think about what a different type of religious commitment would look like. And, and how a person might be committed to God in a different sort of way that really involved this love of goodness and truth and justice as, a, as your kind of deepest commitment. Excellent. Um, well, you've got me sold. I'll definitely check it out. Yeah. Um, any other uh, uh, books you've been thinking about or uh, is that your main one that you would say for now? Um, another one that's a little more technical that I would uh, really recommend to, to people who, who know a bit of logic is uh, Proust and Rasmussen's Necessary Existence. Ah, yes. Excellent. It's not officially an argument for the existence of God, yeah. um, but it is a book-length argument that something exists necessarily, and I, I found it really impressive. And 
Interestingly, Graham Oppie and I each wrote reviews of it for different journals, and our reviews are like totally opposite. So, <laughs> so if you're interested in in more disagreement between Graham and I, you can check those out as well. If you appreciate the content and tone of what Real Atheology has to offer, please consider writing a review on iTunes or sharing an episode on social media. We also have a Patreon to which you can make a small recurring donation per episode in support of the show. Music is from the Chicago-based band Casserole. We would also like to thank our patrons, Aiden Armstrong, Jason, Robin Willems, Ed Atkinson, Kashi Samaro Rira, Kim Boschkowski, Anthony Lawson, Jeffrey Rubinoff, Brandon McCleary.